0: It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, December 19th, 2012. Going. I feel like I'm going to come limping in this week. I'm very much looking forward to a little bit of time off with my family. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly. There is no shortage of really bizarre things being said about God, that, and so much of it doesn't jive with or square with Scripture when you actually open up your Bible and compare it in context. Now, part of what we do here at Fighting for the Faith is once a week, uh, just because of my research uh, and uh, writing schedule, I have to uh, basically turn the program over once a week to somebody else. And we call it our light edition, but it's really not light. What I'm, What I do is I select outstanding speakers on particular topics to discuss them so that you know there's some good teaching that goes along with the program that's you know top drawer high quality that further helps you think of it as like pirate christian university you know something along those lines so these are our continuing education credits uh, units for our our listeners so that you continue to sharpen your theological swords, uh, learn a little bit more regarding discernment, and by drilling deep into a a particular topic. Now, on Friday of last week, because of the uh, Sandy Hook uh, Elementary School shooting, I posted uh, for Fighting for the Faith a uh, a lecture by uh, Dr. William Edgar of uh, Westminster Theological Seminary, uh, you know, a, a lecture that he did on the problem of evil. the Part two today is actually going to uh, deal with the problem of evil, but looking at the biblical data regarding evil, and uh, also by William Edgar. So that's what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. A little bit heady, get your Bible out, you're probably going to need it, um, and let's just dive right into it. I think this is a good compliment to Friday's program, and the name of it is, again, The Biblical Data on Evil. Here's Dr. William Edgar.
1: Good. Um, A few more thoughts and then uh, let's have some good discussion. Um, You can see where I'm going with these partial answers that are incomplete. Um, And there are a couple of steps, I think, to add that are important for us. Um, First of all, the utter reality and danger of evil, um, I think... This is one of the doctrines that's the hardest to take for some of our generation. Uh, You get irritated when you don't fully understand it with people reminding you about sin. And when you read the Bible, if you're not um, instructed on these things, you get irritated with the harsh reality of the picture that um, Scripture constantly um, reminds us of. It's of course a Christian admonition, Romans 12:9, hate that which is evil. Because evil or the cardinal evil known as sin in the Hebrew vocabulary is an exceptionally rich description of all that is wrong, all that is not meant to be. As Paul explains, the law is given in order to reveal the heinous horror of transgression. Uh, prophets, at the risk of their very lives, poured forth indignation after indignation against the, the evils, the misdeeds, the sins of Israel. Um, they were not only troublemakers, but they were uh, hypocrites, rebels in the face of what was daily revealed to them, uh, treason against all that God had done for them. Even on the day of Pentecost, the Apostles' preaching carries a note on that day of liberation, of strong accusation. The only proper response from the guilt of what has been incurred is a complete turnaround, a complete break with the corrupt generation, Acts 2.40. Um... And although the death of Christ was planned by God, indeed is the centerpiece of his act of love and redemption towards humanity, that speech interprets the death of Christ primarily in relation to people's sins. And this description carries through right to the end of the the Bible. So with, as Henri Blocher puts it in one of his books, and we'll talk about the books tonight, by the way, um, With the greatest obstinacy, Scripture upholds the antithesis between good and evil. And I continue the quote. There is not the slightest hint of some descent into the depths to the point where opposites meet, beyond good and evil. A dream that haunts nearly all pagan religion. Rather, there is stubborn resistance to the heady attraction of paradoxical reversals. Isaiah, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Now, uh, we could go on. And um, I think the reality of sin is something that only dawns on us gradually. We couldn't take it if we had it all at once. um, As we pray that risky prayer from Psalm 19, asking the Lord uh, to send his probe just as the sun probes everything under its gaze, that he may send the probe of his law deep into our heart to see if there be any secret fault. Um, we find out, indeed, there's more than one secret fault. Um, so the first step is uh, the utter reality of, of what's wrong. As I mentioned yesterday, I think it was uh, Reinhold Niebuhr who, who, who once said that we don't like the doctrine of original sin, but it's the best description, It's the best empirical description of the world going Um, and it's not really until we sense in some partial way that we are sinners um, that we can begin to look at the overall answer Um, apocryphal or not, I've never been able to track this down and I wish somebody would do it for me Um, the the story goes that the times of London uh, back in the 20's Published an essay context, um, which they used to do, you know. And the question they asked was, "What's wrong with the world?" And they got all kinds of answers from all kinds of people. And the shortest answer, maybe the shortest letter to any editor ever given, was G.K. Chesterton's. "What's wrong with the world?" And he just said, "I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton." What's wrong with the world? I am. Again, I don't know, he, he's likely to have said this, but there's so many wonderful stories about him, some of them true, some of them not. I, I have found references to the story in, by searching the web. I have not find the, found the article or the thing, you know. Um, so if you can do that for me, that'd be great. Um, now, um, until we um, realize that we're part of the uh, problem. Now, another word about sin... Um, And that is, we need utterly to distinguish between the regime of the creation and the regime of the fall. And Os Guinness says we need bifocal spectacles. When we look at the world, we see the creation. And it's not just the world of nature, it's the world of buildings and culture and human history and all of that. We see the creation and its goodness. At the same time, we see the corruption of the fall. Now, back to the story of Camus. Um, When he puts in, I think, his mouthpiece, uh, the doctor's mouth, Rieu, the words, I fight creation where I find it. It's a very revealing statement because one of the characteristics of sub-Christian solutions to the problem of evil is to mix up the creation with the fall. Uh, The world as we find it is the world God gave us. And the world as we find it is the world we've got to fight because we don't like what God gave us. Um, Instead, we must fight sin like a plague without fighting either the creation or the creator who gave it to us. Some of us have already been talking about this uh, during the break Um, And we said it uh, a while ago, um, there's a series of sermons from Francis Schaeffer to Tim Keller to others on uh, John 11, benefiting from that article by Warfield on the emotional life of our Lord, where he hates um, what he sees. Um, Jesus is the model of the one who at that point could have turned to his father and say, Why did you make a world like this? But instead, he hates the evil that is intruded into the world. He hates the abnormality. He passionately wept over the death of his dear friend. Jesus, as we should think, was not only God, but God in the flesh. And as a human, true human being, um, he had close friends, and he liked to hang out with them. And among his closest friends was the little family that lived at Bethany, where he liked to go before going into Jerusalem. And... um, John 11 is an extraordinary passage concerning the problem of evil and many other things. But there he is weeping with Mary, telling Martha he is the resurrection and announcing the new world order where there won't be all of this and caught up in the evil of it. But never for a moment would he have thought of turning against the Father or against the Trinity of which he is the part and blaming the father for the way things are, and that is um, that's a terribly important, um, much neglected understanding that the creation is not what's wrong; <coughs> it's the fall. Um, you may even say that we should have trifocal vision because we aren't we're not left with the fall; we're we're, we're left with with redemption. Um, now, it is it is perfectly true that freedom, human freedom, has a lot to do with the fall. There would not have been a fall without it. It is also perfectly true that freedom is God's good gift to us. That doesn't make the risk of freedom argument valid as an explanation for how sin got here because that hangs the authorship somewhere subtly on God. No matter how we try to avoid it by saying he took a risk or he just did the possibility or there's... That 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 still leaves him somewhat responsible. Um, What we want to say is two things. Um, God is not author, meaning in no way does God have accountability. Does he have a responsibility that can be judged, that can be... um, Accused uh, for for evil. Uh, James tells us um, God is not going to tempt someone because there's not a, a shadow of turning in him. He's pure goodness. Um, um, and yet, at the same time, we somehow have to safeguard his sovereignty and his almightiness and his power over all things, which means somewhere, somehow, he had to have ordained even evil. We, uh, we recoil against that suggestion because we don't know about an ordaining which is not authorship. It's not a common way to think of things. And perhaps it's ultimately simply a mystery. Um, it, it is a mystery in the sense that we dare not try to suggest why God might have ordained or permitted evil. Any such suggestion will fall into a justification. Oh, that's why, well, I see why we have to have evil. Then the next step is, okay, that explains evil. That gets us off the hook. We can't do that. It's the unjustifiable reality. But we do want to respect the, mu- the great abundance of biblical data that says um, that, that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, um, and so we, we've got to maintain that delicate balance between um, the gift of freedom and the significance of creation, our authorship of evil that goes with it, and yet the ordination some at some level of God in, in His wisdom, without saying this is why. <laughs> and I, you know, I've heard theologians, maybe hyper Calvinists or others, who 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 think they know why. Um, And I think you have to tremble to say such things. There was a a conference not too long ago in in America. I won't name names because I think it's not useful. But uh, it was just after a a plane had been shot down with some missionaries on it in in, uh, South America. And the the speaker was speaking about the problem of evil. And um, one person asked, well, who's responsible for the downing of the plane. And one person in the audience said God pulled the trigger. We have to say a thousand times no. Um, God is in control. He's sovereign. He ordains. But um, you can't have a simple causal relationship between that control and evil. Now, having said that, you don't want to go to the other extreme and say he has no because there's so much scripture that says he sent evil spirits into the mind of some prophet. He rose, raised up the Chaldeans and evil people. Uh, he, so once evil is in the world, uh, he, is, he is utterly sovereign over it and uses it for his own purposes. Sometimes these purposes are judgment. Sometimes he even judges by confirming the hardness of heart that we already have. Um, I don't know. I haven't done the math for a long time, but... I remember when I was um, a young Christian, the big question would always come up about Pharaoh. And, um, you know, will God harden his heart? Well, he did. But I, I think almost the same number of times, maybe slightly less, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart and then it turns around and says, God hardened his heart. There's obviously something going on there where God is not making Pharaoh do something that he really wouldn't have done because he's such a good guy. He, uh, he's confirming by judgment something that was already there. And at every point, you have to add, Pharaoh could have repented. Because the free offer is always abundantly clear. Uh, and here we have a mystery. Um, God not only knows, but he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. And yet, he offers genuinely, that whosoever turns, not just whoever of the elect turn, that would have been kind of obvious, but whosoever turns um, may be saved. Um, And he doesn't desire the death of a sinner. He wants the sinner to come to life. Theologians sometimes distinguish between his decretive will, his will of decree, which is the ordination part, and his preceptive will, which is what he asks of people. And uh, it's a somewhat useful distinction because it's trying to say God's ultimately in charge of everything, but um, that doesn't obliterate or flatten the reality of his relationship to creation. Um, his relation to creation um, is, is one of not just accommodation, uh, but one of, of, of reality. Um, and here you can see why the open theist would struggle because there are so many texts in the Bible besides the ones that tell us he's sovereign that seem to tell us, that don't seem to, they do tell us he's changed his mind. He regrets, uh, Genesis 6, he regrets having made man. Um, in um, Jonah, you know, he changed his mind about wiping out Nineveh because they repented. Uh, And and many, many other places, you know, Abraham bargaining him down. If if there's only ten, if there's only five, if there's only one, okay, I'll... I'll, um, What do you do with this? Um, Even Calvin, who is such a hero to many of us, I think was a bit timid here because he said, this is a language of accommodation. In other words, this is the way you kind of have to make yourself known so that people would understand it. It it, kind of looks like God changed his mind, but he really didn't. Um, If you pray, and there's a person who's ill, um, and and God heals the person because of your prayer, uh, it kind of looks like he listened to you and that was the trigger, so he healed him, but you know he was going to do this all along. I think that's a bit timid. He really did. Change his mind, but it's a covenant relationship whereby he takes the covenant seriously. Um, it's a hard concept to get our head around. It relates to the incarnation. All right? The second person of the Trinity became man. God, as God, could not weep or die, but because he was man, he could weep and die. Uh, Now, what is attributable to each of the natures, the human and and the divine, is attributable to the person. So it's perfectly legitimate to say the person of Christ died on the cross. It's a little riskier to say God died at Calvary without being very careful that you're saying with respect to his humanity, the person died. But the death was real. Um, if you don't believe that you can't be a Christian uh, if you don't believe that the second person died uh, in, in, in his uh, in his humanity uh, Arians struggled with that they, um, they couldn't quite believe God would so invest himself in a dying person he must have pulled out at the last minute and it was kind of this human thing that died and then he came back um, nope it was the person
2: but you say God changes his mind, mm-hmm. but if he does, what do you make of the text in 1 Samuel where Saul says, sorry, Samuel says to Saul, God is not, not like a man, right. whereby he might change right. his mind. So it, that's absolutely fundamental to the nature of God. Right. It's all to do with our understanding, our changing, so, so God does not change in his purposes, but we change in our reaction and in our response to him.
1: I think you can go a step further while entirely safeguarding as a fundamental truth that God doesn't change. His aseity, his uh, immutability is an absolute given. Um, Yet, when he relates to the creation, there is such a reality to what he's created uh, that you can talk about change. Now, how do you talk about no change and change at the same time? Think it you... You do it in the same way you can talk about the deity and the humanity of the person at the same time. That's where I find Calvin timid because I think he's saying uh, it kind of looks like he changed his mind but it's just to accommodate us. Uh, It's more than an appearance. I think it's a reality. And if you take away from that reality you might be in danger of taking away from the reality of the death and resurrection of Christ because God can't die. Um, You know, he's immortal. So... Both. <laughs> um, and, and it's not just a dialectical both, a little bit of this, you know, it's not just a few texts on this side, a few texts on that side, let's, let's call it a mystery. It's, 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 a, uh, it's because God is God that he's able to make a world that is real and, there, and really interact with it and, and therefore, in relation to that world, change, even though ultimately it's all in the plan. Yeah. Yeah. Help me out.
3: Also, with Samuel, it's a matter of God's not being unfaithful yeah.
1: right. to his promises. That's right. It's not just the immutability. It's the covenant promise. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. And in what respect does he change and not change? He's unchangeable in his promises. He's unchangeable in his being. That doesn't mean that he is incapable of repenting when uh, we repent um, or when he regrets having done something as something that is real though ultimately of course rooted in his utter sovereignty right Um, (laughs) a a, a quick word maybe about freedom Um, I said earlier that it's only because of freedom that we were able to fall though that freedom isn't um, a risk that God took, it's nevertheless real However, we might want to say that the essence of freedom is not alternative choice. It became that in the fall, sadly. But the important essence of freedom is not, well, I could go either way, you know, the road less taken, or A as opposed to B. Um, The essence of freedom, biblically, is that I am not programmed, It is that I am the choice maker. Um, Robert Louis Dabney, a Southern American theologian of of two centuries ago, um, did some interesting reflection on our dispositional complex in which he said the essence of freedom is, first, human action is real. Human agency is real. Second, we are responsible for our actions Because our agency is worthy of blame or approbation. Third, human choice belongs to us. Our wills are our own, not constrained by external force. This is true while predestination is true at the same time. This is what Schaeffer used to call a limiting concept. just don't know how that all computes. But you can't rob one side or the other of its reality without both falling down. And Dabney suggests that in our dispositional complex, the I that decides, not by external coercion, is a complex unit that is much more than just a narrow margin of choice-making that the will accomplishes, though there is that. Um, The I that decides comes with a temperament. Some of us, by temperament, are gentler. Some of us are more aggressive. In a fallen world, some of our temperaments are predisposed uh, to alcoholism, uh, to sexual sins, uh, to anger. Um, Part of the I is uh, is informed by the family we grew up in. Uh, You know, in modern individualism... We kind of say, oh, I want to choose myself. I'm my own person. Okay, but your family is important. And you may have come from a very dysfunctional family and you have to deal with that. Uh, but it's an influence that, that matters. Uh, your culture, your citizenship, your, a, your time uh, in the history of mankind. All of those things contribute to the dispositional complex that is myself. And That does not mean that God judges Uh, based on a kind of um, well, you couldn't help it but I'm going to hold you accountable because everybody else was doing it. He does hold a person responsible sometimes despite the circumstances. There's eloquent passages in Jeremiah which, which say that you're not going to blame the sons for the sins of the father. Um, if the sons make a better choice than the father, they're going to be approved. So God is, a, is an utterly fair judge. But it is to say that human freedom is much more than uh, the, the kind of modern concept of you have a choice. Um, you know, you hear parents saying to your kid, you have a choice, you know, don't do this. That, that's, that's true. But there's, there's a much broader group of conditions that inform our choice making. And these are good, not bad. Now, we, I, recoil sometimes when I see in the scriptures uh, a judgment against a family for something one guy did. Uh, or sometimes a judgment against a whole village for what two or three leaders did. We don't, it's, I don't like that. It doesn't seem fair. Um, a couple of things to say. Of course, in the ultimate eternity, we, we don't know how it all pans out. But we presume God takes every person um, who, as Galatians says, bears his own burden. Uh, but also, there is a corporate nature of sin, which I think we, we need to take more into account than we do. Um, as an American, I'm sometimes not very pleased with what my government does, so I quickly say to people, you know what, I don't agree with this, but actually I share some of the responsibility, because I'm a citizen. Um, and uh, in modern individualism, we don't like to hear that, but there is a shared responsibility. There's a wonderful balance in Scripture between individual and group, uh, and I think we've lost the group side of that. This is all to say that our freedom is real, that though God is in charge, it, it's real. And our culpability is therefore all the more real when, uh, when we fall into sin. Now, what I haven't said yet, which is the thing that matters most, is that although we may not have all the pieces of an explanation for the origins of evil, nor even the description of it and in relation to God and so forth, what we do have um, is the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. We have the answer to the problem of evil. Um, and it is, at one level, a simple answer, at another level, uh, an incredibly profound answer. Um, it is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, who willingly came to the world to die in the place of his people, of sinners. Who, uh, whose sin is so great that only an atonement so hideous as to have the separation between the Father and the Son could be a proper um, redemption. For, for, for his people.
0: Okay, we're going to pause right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at com. or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Because all the letters of the Bible are red letters, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
3: let's face it it's a visual age and the old bible is impractical and irrelevant but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth if you're tired of all those words like atonement sin justification and all that deep stuff about god look no further Announcing The Massage, a new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, The Massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of The Massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide.
4: Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I would invite you to visit our website worldviewweekend.com and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse It's 500 pages, over 600 footnotes. Now while you're at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Hello, you've reached the office of Pyro Christian Radio. How can I help you? Um, yes. I have a problem. Oh, uh, what's the problem? My Christmas tree is ugly. Well, that's not much of a. And I was wondering if you had anything that could make it look nice. Well, yes, actually. Pyro Christian Radio is selling our very own Christmas bulbs this year. Oh, those sound nice. It gets better, though. Not only do you get a red Christmas bowl with Pyro Christian Radio's logo on it, but it comes adorned with a handmade beaded topper that contains eight real Savorski crystals. It sounds so pretty. How do I get one? Uh, very easily. Just go to pyrochristianradio.com forward slash bake sale. Thank you very much. You're uh, very welcome. Have a Merry Christmas. Oh, you too.
0: We're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. Especially if your church isn't really teaching you God's word in any depth or magnitude, but just blitz along the surface teaching you about you. Well, just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And uh, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038, and let me thank you for your support. Okay, here is the balance of today's lecture by uh, Dr. William Edgar regarding the biblical data regarding evil. Here we go. I
5: have heard, uh, heard it said before now, <clears throat> A, as a kind of a theology, you know, God decreed the fall and then decreed creation. Superaxarian, um, basically, as an explanation that uh, God's, God's how else could we know God's love unless, we, unless God decreed the fall? But isn't that almost like the fourth um, suggestion? I think it is. Isn't that well, the third suggestion? The third. It's a necessary evil? The
1: happy guilt, right. No, I, I recoil against that. I think. Adam and Eve knew God's love a lot before the fall, and we would have known it even more had they passed the probation. We can speculate as to how much greater the knowledge of the love of God is because of the sacrifice of Christ. But that's not to say, oh, plan B is better than plan A. It's to say that God was so merciful that he went to extraordinary lengths and um, we, we have his love now in an extraordinary way. I think we have to stop it at that rather than to say... Uh, that's, you know, it, it was good that we fell because we got even a better thing now. Don't, I don't, you just, that's a speculation we can't say. says
5: uh, that same argument, isn't it? What should we the we
1: Yeah, and but he I says no, right. That's right. Same argument. Right, it, it is, right. Um, and then, what we need to say is that if we've got hold of this, we then become Christ's allies in the fight against the plague. In other words, um, reform is only truly and finally possible uh, because of the atonement. Now, there are plenty of reform movements outside of Christianity, but most of them fall short um, of of a full-orbed compassion. Um, But we now, who are called uh, to continue um, in the in the sufferings of of Christ, but also in his resurrection power, um, are called to go and and ameliorate the world and have mercy on the world because we don't hold anything dear anymore except the knowledge of Christ and his resurrection power. Um, now back to the story of Camus. He was writing his novel in this amazing village which distinguished itself as I mentioned, uh, by uh, protecting 5,000 or more Jews, many of them children, from sure deportation. Uh, and they did it at considerable risk. It was a f- poor farming village. There were several of them that were in the uh, plateau of the Aldesh. Sorry. Yeah. Writing your name yeah. Um, and where's um, <clears throat> my pen? And I'll I'll tell you uh, the film I wanted to show, but I couldn't. It's not out in um, in DVD yet, so I didn't think we could do VHS with the PAL system. The village is called Le Chambon. Uh, It's in the. It's near Saint Etienne, and um, it's a farming village. And for three centuries or four centuries, most of the citizens had been uh, Huguenot Christians. Uh, going back to um, the Protestant Reformation in France and then the persecuted peoples who stayed in France rather than leaving. And um, they basically, this poor village, doubled its size in a space of several months uh, because they just took in children from all corners of Europe uh, on their way, uh, many of them, to Switzerland and then out to safe havens um, Great Britain, uh, North America, and so on. And um, several times they were, uh, they were visited by Nazis. and, and uh, They were led by an amazing minister, Trocme. Um They probably would have done it without him, but his leadership was enormously important. He was a spiritual counselor, um, bar none. And uh, the doctor in the village actually uh, was a wonderful Christian. Camus modeled his uh, Dr. Rieu after this guy, Carefully, not knowing uh, the fact, or ignoring, or just not ever discovering that the guy was a deeply in- engaged Christian. Um, and um, they forged papers. It was a center that even some of the Nazis uh, winked at because they were starting to not believe in their own cause. Um, a documentary was done of this. Um, of this village by a marvelous uh, man who who was born there and didn't know that he was Jewish until he was 18 years old, named Pierre Sauvage. He's an American filmmaker. He now lives. In, he grew up in New York, but he uh, now is in Los Angeles. And um, for reasons that I, I think those of us who know a little bit about this history uh, are are clear but are, are odd, he, it was kept from him that he was a Jew, and he kind of figured it out, and he finally they told him when he was 18 years old. And um, he, uh, his fiancé actually was a practicing Jew, and, and he's now a, a much more practicing Jew, and he kind of laughs at, um, at God's providence. Um, anyway, he became a major filmmaker and decided he would go back and make a documentary on this village to find out what had motivated him, what had gone on, what were the details, and to meet some of his protectors. And, um, of course, to his astonishment... When he interviewed people, they didn't want him to come. They reluctantly allowed, because French people are very discreet, and people don't, especially Protestants, they don't like to speak about themselves. He was astonished to learn that they had no idea that they were being heroes. Um, He asked them questions like, Well, what gave you the courage to bring 10 strange people into your house for three years and feed them and educate them and keep them from the Nazis? And they'd said, uh, courage? Um, the second great commandment says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's all we were doing. It's just kind of matter of fact. We, this, is what Christian, this is what people do when they love God. Uh, it was just very disarming. It was beautiful. Um, and so these non-heroic heroes uh, have been celebrated in, in a film called Weapons of the Spirit, which you can find on on, on the web, and, and it, you can rent, you can buy it. I have a couple of copies, and it's coming out. That I'm, I've become friends over email with Pierre Sauvage, and he's he's coming out with a DVD version in the in the fall. Um, but um, uh, interestingly enough, well, they had a kinship with the Jews in a way because they they were people of the book, they were persecuted pe- people, and they some of them became believers um, during this thing. Their primary aim was not evangelism, though it happened. Uh, the primary aim was to protect them. Uh, but they did it so, so matter-of-factly, as a, as a matter of, of um, what God expects. Um, the, year, the same year that um, the film came out, another film uh, by Martin Scorsese, The Last Temptation of Christ, came out. I don't know if you ever saw this, but the Jesus of this film was this racked existentialist figuring out who he is dreaming about Mary Magdalene and, you know, it was, it, it was awful. Uh, the Jesus of Le Chambon was this solid um, son of God who directed his people and saved them through lots of troubles. And um, I remember one, one scene in the, in the film where um, Pierre's cousin comes and hugs a woman called Marie Brotte and she's, she starts weeping and Pierre says, what, what are, why are you so deeply moved? She said it's like hugging a tree. This one was so solid. You know, they were rooted in the ground. And, uh, and a, a thoughtful editorial compared these two movies. The Christ of Scorsese, tortured, wondering who he was. The Christ of Marie Brotte, you know, solid, and um, made her into a tree. Uh, and um, Camus was writing in this village, and I just don't know if he ever saw what was really happening. Here were people fighting the plague because they were Christians with a matter-of-fact heroism, (laughs) whereas his hero, the doctor, had to be an atheist because only if God isn't there can you fight against evil. Um, Happily, I think, um, Camus um, became closer and closer to Christian faith, and it's a very likely possibility that for many reasons, a dialogue with a Catholic priest and others. Um, a couple of years before he died in a tragic car accident, he became a Christian. Um, I'd like to think that he did. We'll know someday. But um, uh, so he was. He was. He was not just a hardened atheist, but he he just didn't see it. And um, so, because of Jesus' victory, we now become his co-workers in fighting the plague where we find it. And and we, we can have that courage. Yes?
5: So we had an interesting article up here about papers around the time of Hurricane Katrina. Roy Hatterstein, one of our MPs, Felix, his name is, he wrote basically about how going into uh, New Orleans were all the Christians, these people who in one sense he feels a huge distance apart, you know, because they don't like gays and all this sort of stuff, uh, and yet he said, you know, here are the people who are at the vanguard of helping people and why aren't we intellectuals who talk about yeah. humanity doing right. anything? Why are we just talking about it? And he had to put wow. his hand up and say, wow. no, these are the people on hmm. the ground doing something. Hmm.
1: Yeah. So a it's that wonderful. About. Yes, yes, it is. Um, so, um, if Christ offered himself a ransom sufficient for all, Uh, From there, we not only have the right perspective, the trifocal vision, but we have all the grounds and incentive for our own action. We become those who fight against the plague. We fight injustice. Uh, We spend our money on cancer research, AIDS research. We care for the handicapped. We promote life. We share in the sufferings of Christ that we may know his resurrection. And we can bear our neighbor's burdens... Because Jesus has borne ours. Um, Easy words to say, hard to put into action, but we can put them into action the more we realize how free we are in Christ, not to cling to the comforts and the things that we care most about. Um, The more we realize all that he gave, gave up for us, the more we realize what a small thing, relatively, it is to give up everything for his sake and for the sake of of our neighbors, um, to to count others better. Um, And each of us is called to a different way to do this. Um, No one can save the world. Um, We have a small part to play um, in giving and in acting in different missions that we care about and being with our neighbors, raising children, whatever it might be. There's no guilt trip that we need to impose on people who are not kind of furiously tearing their hair out about trying to help in some some country which is going through awful problems. We, we may be called to that, and, and, and we should consider it, but um, we're called, just as we mentioned the other day, into different places of responsibility to fight the plague. And um, beautiful, beautiful passage about, you know, the woman who came and wept over Jesus' feet and... Um, just worshipped him extravagantly. And Jesus says to the critics um, who don't understand this, impropriety, um, that she loves much because she was forgiven much. Ironically, the Pharisees had a lot more to be forgiven about, but they weren't there. She had seen it. It was easier for her to see because she was in that position. The more we understand um, what we've been forgiven and, and at what cost, the more we're free to love and it's, a, it's gradual it's not a thing you can just get there's no rock of indubitability where you're just suddenly going to see it it's just a gradual process and you see it in the example of others and you, um, you, you ask God to make you more like them so um, boy we have no, in no ways covered the problem of evil there's much much more to be said but I think those are some contours that can prove uh, helpful to us over to you
6: there's a, a plague village in Derbyshire called Eve which gives us a marvelous picture of the atonement because the plague came there through um, a traveling trader who brought in an infected cloth and it began to kill off people in the village of Eve and under the leadership of the minister of the church, they took the decision to seal themselves off from the outside world uh, which they did uh, so food was brought up to a certain place, money was handed over um, and left in that place hmm. and this continued for 18 months and by the time the plague passed I think over 150 people had died in the village of Eden. Uh, perhaps a, a third of the population but the villages around were spared so they were they, they, they receive life at the cost mm. of
1: his ability mm. amazing
2: if you def- define evil as being outrageous against God mm-hmm. then almost by definition God won't be outrageous against God right. but it won't be against his goodness he creates people who might be outrageous that may be an outflowing of his love that they have the opportunity to love him freely or perhaps medieval freely as well but one can focus on the positive aspect as well so I I don't see such an awful problem that you see in your first category of um, your first category of um,
1: well, sorry, yeah, the evil risk evil of freedom.
2: freedom. Because God is not being outrageous against God if he creates people who might be outrageous.
1: But doesn't it um, uh, impinge on um, his character uh, as one who is cannot look upon evil, as Habakkuk puts it, uh, to invite uh, into a, a world that is made uh, evil? In other words isn't there something incompatible about who he is at the very root of his goodness? Which is why there's a hell for judgment of people. If he was just kind of showing his generosity and creating people who are against him, it seems a little hard to put them away. you know. And I, would, I, would, I guess I struggle with the idea that God can actually even tolerate Um, the slightest amount of evil. I I do take the point that it is is an an amazing testimony to the nature of his goodness that he can be patient with evil for a certain time. Um, And and therefore, I I would quarrel with Hume, who in goodness meant has to to end the thing now uh, if if he's good. But I, I wouldn't want to go further than that myself. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead.
7: Can I just respond? I'm more sympathetic, I think. Okay. Uh, we've got Christopher set all away because right. I sort of feel that what's happening is that um, mm-hmm. the, uh, the evil because of freedom, and in some senses, I feel, places the responsibility very firmly on us. Mm-hmm. And I feel that uh, all that you're doing when you say that you push it from <clears throat> God taking a risk with us and therefore possibly making it appear that he is the author, you just take it back a step and say he ordains it but he doesn't author it and how that, that, those two things go together is a mystery so I sort of feel that you just take refuge in mystery rather than in the responsibility of human beings yeah, do, well, do, do,
1: do, do. yeah I, I think you've read me right and if that's what you're saying I'm, I'm okay with it I just, I'm not sure I would formulate it in a way of saying it's part of his goodness to allow people to exist who are against him uh, that's not yeah. my understanding of goodness
3: okay. yeah, yeah.
2: Is is to
1: like people to exist who may love him freedom. Oh, for sure. Um, Therefore, there's the other side. But that's the Arminian argument, which I don't accept. I don't accept, you know, I don't, I, I don't think that that's an, a fair understanding either of, of the nature of freedom or of, of God's plan. Um, it makes love <laughs> dependent on alternative choice, which I don't think is the Bible's way of defining love. Um, love is giving, loyalty, self-sacrifice. Uh, but it's not dependent on, oh, it could have been hatred. I don't think you need that. It's now become that, but I don't think you need that. I, some, you sometimes hear the analogy of marriage. Um, you know, when I married Barbara, in the in the liturgy it says, forsaking all others. Um, my love for Barbara isn't because I don't love a lot of other people or I could have loved other people or I could have hated her and it's, it's, it's a thing in itself um, now it is perfectly true that I can be unfaithful you know, and go after somebody I'm not supposed to and not forsake all others but I wouldn't want my definition of love to depend on alternative choice the way it sadly has become in a fallen world okay, okay. Yeah,
2: Probably the, the biggest question that I get asked these days is the issue of genocide in the world today. And people, to the you know, people of Israel coming into the promised land, and God actually right. authorship and, or, and ordaining, and that God actually commanding His people to go and slaughter yeah. a village and children and women and animals. Can you make some more comments on
1: that. Huh? I have no easy. Uh, st- Narrative about that, I, you know, I recoil against it as much as anybody. You know what? What you need to say, uh, you know, intellectually, it it makes sense. Eventually, it gets down to the emotions. Is that um, the evil of that people was so full and so uh, wicked that it was perfectly just for God to to go in and judge them, Um, and at the same time provide a model for a more perfect kingdom which became a foreshadowing of heaven. Um, and, um, you know, w- there was a time when they, their, their iniquity wasn't full and then it became full. It, it wasn't yet full when Abraham was called and then it, 400 years later or whatever it was, it became more full. Um, also, the other thing to say is that while um, God did indeed call them to battle, and to wipe out the land. Um, he didn't call Israel to be a kind of um, jihad-like righteous um, establisher of, of justice because they were so good themselves. Or they were, they were just God's people. You know, there's, in Deuteronomy it says somewhere that you, you were the smallest people. I didn't do this because you were important, just to, to show my power. And they were actually reluctant to go. Um, several times they had to be encouraged. to, come, And they had to do it in the right way. There were setbacks when they, when they fell back into uh, lust and so forth. Um, and it was completely temporary. It was a complete parenthesis. It wasn't a war of ag- infinite aggrandizement. There were borders. It was to show uh, the world something about God's light uh, before the final judgment. Um, and so you can't go back to it and say this is a normal pattern. I, I once heard a speech by um, a general. He happened to be an American general. And he was saying, oh, you've got the best strategies possible if you study the Old Testament. No, it's not a model for modern strategies. It's a, it's a, it's a parenthesis which was there to show something about God, which now he shows by the preaching of the gospel uh, where we put up our swords. Um, as I say, this is the intellectual answer. It's not a jihad. It's not. It's you know. It's a very special Hebrew word, harem warfare, uh, contained in its purpose. Um, but it's emotionally, for us, for me, very hard to look back and see a God who orders slaughtering. I you know doesn't sit well.
5: Are, are, are we
3: just purely uh, conversational? Are we just afraid of the judgment of God? Oh uh, yeah. After all, God wiped out the
0: That's world.
1: right. Yeah, that's right.
0: So yeah
3: yeah
1: it's my problem i mean i i I am emotionally sensitive for the wrong reasons I, uh, it, it, I because I don't fully accept how evil I am and how God should just wipe me out and wipe everybody else out so you're right I, it's a, it's an emotional lack of um, having arrived at a full appreciation for god's judgment and I know when the judgment comes um, when I'll be perfect. Then I will celebrate God's judgment in a way that is um, balanced. Uh, Not not self satisfied, I hope, but uh, that is is happy that justice is being done.
3: That's what Abraham did, wasn't it? he said, the judge of all the after that which is right. Ultimately, he left it in the hands
1: of. Yeah, no, I agree. I
7: I found two things helpful in thinking about this question of the genocide thing. First of all, um, it is a very exceptional thing that yeah. God requires because later on in the Old Testament you've got tremendous judgment by God against, for example, the cruelty of the Assyrians and they are judged for their exceptional cruelty.
1: And a- Israel is judged also. Yeah,
7: so I mean it's, it's seen as a very it, it's, it's not part of God's normal pattern right, remotely. Right. The, the other thing is I think that sometimes we forget just how appalling these ancient cultures could be and so we need to think about what our our more histor- uh, recent historical examples. One I find quite helpful is just looking at how appalling the Aztec culture was, yeah. which had a system of warfare which was designed to gain victims in order to have their hearts ripped out, mm. uh, in order for them to be able to carry out the sacrifices necessary. I mean, if you look at it and see what Aztec culture was like, it's, which is why a lot of the Indians joined actually Cortes, and that lot were pretty appalling. Yeah, um, you you get some you get mm. some sense of the. Of, of how despicable human beings can become and I think that's the kind of culture yeah. God was uh, you know the Amaranth. This, Amaranth.
1: these cultures needed to be wiped out right the worship of Moloch wasn't exactly no no it was totally cruel yeah. and torturous and that's right uh, one and then two it does just help in some of these
6: arguments to reflect on the fact that we're inclined to think that the worst thing that can ever happen to anybody is that they die physically mm. And actually, as Christians, we don't believe that. Right. Um, you know, and a lot of our, our thinking tends to be, you know, be influenced by
1: that. And it's easy, for me, it's easy to forget. We we have uh, amnesia about how awful certain cultures are. Like, I mean, here we are in Europe, um, and um, England was threatened daily by the Blitz. You know, for months and months and months, and people died and. Uh, this this man and, it, and uh, the, the party were, were out to conquer the whole world and to make them subject to themselves and never mind that we have to gas six million Jews and so forth how easily we forget these things and why we should be hankering for justice which can include um, has to include sometimes violence uh, you had one
3: yeah I think the heart of the issue is whether God has the right to judge Yeah. and what you said about the uh, the iniquity, the wickedness, not yet being full, I would put in a slightly, uh, slightly the other way around, that in Genesis fifteen, God says in effect to Abraham, I cannot give the land to your descendants now, because it would not be just for me. Oh yes, right. To judge the people, yet right, it will be four hundred and thirty years before it is just for me to give it to your descendants. In the meanwhile, they have to wait. Yeah. But the time will come when the iniquity of the Amorites hmm. is full, and then we just for them to be
1: genre. Yeah, that's good. That's helpful. Um, you know, again, in this um, story of Le Chambault that I spent a lot of my life t- uh, thinking about, um, in the film, it shows some of the senior Nazis actually winking at what was going on in Le Chambon, which they knew perfectly well. They erased names from the lists, and they, they had two or three token names of people that might have been there, but when they, you know, um, they knew perfectly well that they were helping in the cause. And uh, Sauvage, in the, in the narrative, says, you just never know who will be caught up in a conspiracy of goodness. And um, I thought about that phrase, the conspiracy of goodness. Um, and, I, and I thought if we if, if we, if I had any notion of the seriousness of the evil of people, Aztecs, Nazis, ourselves, um, then the problem wouldn't be the problem of evil. It would be the problem of good. You know, how could there be any goodness in such a world? Um, that, that ought to be our, our real problem. How could God wait? How could he be tolerant? How could he save? How could he conspire to help us? Um, and how could we be caught up in it? That, that's, the, that's the problem. When we move from trying to get God off the hook with some sort of theodicy, you know, gee, I guess he's going to be okay, to uh, wow, how can, how can he be so good in the face of, of all this? Um, there is
6: There is an argument. Um, that we live in a contingent world uh, and that, um, for example, the movement of tectonic plates and the release of volcanoes is necessary to sustain the, the world that we live in. Is this similar to um, evil is the necessary task?
1: I think it is. Uh, it's the same as the guy who said we need four tsunamis a century to keep the world going. But... That wouldn't be to deny that as in God's care of the earth he doesn't use things that would otherwise have been very dangerous but in a pre-fallen state might have protected human life from being victims of it. So I wouldn't want to say no volcanoes in an unfallen state. I I have no idea, of course, but um, I, I don't think we should assume that everything that's scary in the world today just is a result of the fall. I don't even assume that animals weren't predators before the fall. I, I'm not sure that that's a thing to really worry about. Uh, I'm sure there was no human death before the fall. Um, maybe there was a translation possible to some higher state, but not death because that was the result of sin and of disobedience. But who knows that there must have been others. I mean, plant death is actually a necessity for plant growth. It doesn't seem to be morally... Uh, heavy for that so I don't know maybe volcanoes could have been there before
3: so, uh,
7: the, uh, a question I find difficult to deal with uh, to deal with judgment and, and, and to deal with the subject of hell is some people would say that yes well we with the ha- we recognize there has to be a judgment if it's <clears throat> to be a moral world otherwise it's just morally indifferent right but it's the nature of the punishment yeah that we have a problem with because it seems disproportionate right. that finite human beings ...presumably can only do finite wrong... Yeah. ...whilst eternal death or separation seems disproportionate to the crime... Right. ...plus, in addition, that the Bible seems to suggest... ...that it's a minority, ultimately, who are saved... ...many are called and few are chosen, etc. ...and therefore, that that somehow seems a compromise of the divine economy... ...that somehow the whole grand project... ...almost it seems that if God made people for fellowship with himself... And it's only a minority who are saved, and those who uh, and those who are lost seem to be lost in a disproportionately uh, wrong punishment yeah. then can we be confident that god's divine economy is right, right. there hasn't been a kind of failure in what he did yeah
1: no, that's a, oh, doing? very much so, very much so. I mean, this is a uh, I know that we have to be careful talking about economics with god yeah, yeah. but um now, I'm not going to make you feel better, but I, I think one of the... Th- the hell of hell is not so much its eternity, um, but its its absence from God. You know, Jonathan Edwards says the hell of hell is looking at the face of God and, and knowing um, that you've, you've chosen not to live with him and you've gotten what you want, in effect. doesn't make you feel better because it's, it's hell. Uh, I think also this is why, and I don't subscribe to this personally, but I'm not ready to wipe them off the map. Uh, Some people have been tempted by the doctrine of annihilation, which seems to them a more proportionate uh, judgment. John Stott has been an important person in my life, and he's been a good friend, and um, he does not subscribe to annihilation. You must know that. He's thought about it a lot, and he has some views. And I've had long discussions with him about this, and, um, no, he has a disclaimer in, in which he says i'm i'm not i can't choose um it, it's a, it's important to know about him because but um he says what attracts him about annihilation is not that it's quick but that it really is hell it's a it's a tremendously awful judgment, but then it's over um, and so he puts the language of scripture together in a way that i don't think i would but um, all right. For that economy, then the other economy. About how many are saved? Um, I, I haven't done this recently, but I, if you count up the world's population, you know, from a long time ago till today, um, there's reason to think that an awful lot of people are, are going to be saved. I mean, Jonathan Edwards thought that, uh, and I think optimistically, that in the next couple of centuries just about the whole planet would be saved and there'd be a minority of people who wouldn't now he had a crazy kind of economy but I wouldn't just take that path. Warfield himself argues in an essay on uh, few are chosen that this is few not will uh, uh, few will be saved right? Are, are there many are called few are, 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 are chosen yeah. no, yes are there many be saved they, that's the they, one are there few who who will we say? That's the one. Mark, right. Uh, and he argues that passage doesn't give us any credence about that. It, the, the likelihood is that there's a great number. Right. So it,
7: it's wrong to infer that the Bible is suggesting right. minority salvation. Right, right.
5: Warfield seems to put it right. the other way around. He seems to suggest that the will go to the absolute maximum number of people who need to be sent to hell to do justice. In the sense that... Therefore, the number of people who go to hell will be minimal. Yeah. But, but justice has to be
1: maintained. Right, right. I think that's what he says. It's, it's,
5: it's infants
3: who are saved.
1: Yeah, right. Infants, um, handicapped people. I mean, we have to be careful. This is a lot of this is speculation. What I, I think you have helpfully raised is a problem we all have of the the emotional difficulty of, of the, the numbers. Um, eternal hell for 70 years of crimes. Um, you know, and, and I I think... I'm not there yet, but I know, I know that the counterbalance to that is the nature of the crime being cosmic treason. Um, the banishment is what's just. Uh, and I think some people have insisted on the eternity of it, the duration, forever, forever. I guess that's there, but I, I don't think that's the Bible's major emphasis. Um, it's more on the gnashing of teeth. It's more you know, the things that, have, that are just for people who have been treasonable against God. And also, um, God, um, contrary to the way we sometimes feel in our worst moments, is not out to get us. Um, his, his, his secret plan is not, what can I do to mess them up so they'll, I'll finally be able to condemn them? Um, he, he's relentless uh, to save uh, the lost. Um, and um, He's going to great extent to do... All that is in his plan to do to save uh, generation after generation, people after people, groups from all over the world, um, and so he's the kind of God you don't have to worry that he's secretly out to kind of get you and do it wrong no he's the kind of God who's not only secretly but overtly out to do uh, the greatest for the for the greatest number of people the most love uh, you know and the most unlikely turnarounds that there are. Um, that's, the, that's the kind of God we have. He's not, relent, he's not reluctant to save. He's relentless to save. Uh, somebody once told me, and I think it's very beautiful, I use it in a lot of my sermons, you know, the, um, where, where Augustine says, um, we are restless, we are unquiet, the Latin says, until we find our rest in thee. Uh, perfectly true and beautiful. Uh, somebody said God's love is so great that he is actually restless, until he can rest in us, his people. You know, he has a restless love. Um, that's the kind of God we have. And sadly, it's been sentimentalized into a benign grandfather or a Santa Claus. Uh, but he's a, he's a God of tough love. Um, that doesn't solve the problem that you've raised, which is totally a problem. Uh, but it, it helps us to start on the right footing as we answer it. Yes.
5: Uh, speaking about unlikely turnarounds, I was kind of intrigued by the idea of the move to Do you know about?
1: It? I know a little bit. Uh, you know, I, some of it's wish fulfillment, but some of it is um, from from looking at circumstances. And he had a, he has a famous correspondence with a priest where he really listens, and and the priest does too. Um, and in some of his um, journal entries, um, he, he he suggests that he's he's on his way to accepting. Christ, because they're doing the same sorts of things. Now, some of that is because of the concern for justice and humanitarianism, and, which is good, but that's not all that Christ did. Um, so we don't know. But um, you know the manuscript they found in his car with Galima when he was on that, and he had that fatal accident in, uh, on Route 7 there? It's called The First Man. And it's a retelling of the story of the world based on Adam, had Adam done something else. And he just was wrestling with this. And I, I just would like to think that um, uh, he, he, he was able to find some answers that he was asking all along. In, in a way that Sartre never cared about, who is such a uh, um, professional atheist. Look at the first man, look at the journals, they've... Uh, What's the name of that um, edition um, in uh, French that has the complete works of the Playade? The Pleiades has just republished all of his journals, and if you if you read French, um, they're they're an amazing um, they're an amazing re- read. The Pleiad P L E I A D E, the Pleiades. It's an it's a, it's an edition of. Complete works of all the French authors, and they've. Yeah,
2: would you go along with Leibniz that we live in the best of all possible fallen
1: worlds? <laughs> <laughs> if he had only said that, that would have been very helpful. A conspiracy of goodness is there, even though it is a terrible world we live in. But unfortunately, he said that God created the best of all possible worlds, um, and so there was a, a sh- underside. Um, you know, I'll, I'll get to you in a second. We haven't done this yet, but, and, and we, we could do it tonight. But um, look at uh, the books um, on uh, the Thursday um, part of our, of our course. Um, if you read French, I find Alain Besançon very helpful on uh, communism, Nazism, and the Christian answer. He gives the Christian answer. Um, Henri Blocher in a book called Evil and the Cross now it's academic and it's a bit dense but I think helps us a lot to understand uh, the major players in this uh, attempt to answer the problem of evil including Barth uh, Leibniz um, I don't know if he mentions Camus um, he actually quotes uh, Schaeffer and, um, and C.S. Lewis they would be a little bit in that fourth category, though Lewis is famously hard to uh, to label. Um, Bonhoeffer, uh, we just had the, his anniversary, you know, and so there's a lot of material out on him. Um, letters and papers from prison are the ones that he wrote when he was finally put into prison, where he died just a couple of weeks before the liberators came, uh, because of the conspiracy uh, to plot against Hitler. And it's a, it, it's a it makes you think. Um, Kierkegaard, he's usually dismissed quickly by evangelicals. I find him terribly rich and challenging. I don't like all of his formulations, of course. And he's, he's a strange romantic writer. But Fear and Trembling is a wrestling with the problem of evil. And it, and it begins with the famous story of Abraham and his son. And he, um, he looks at that story through the eyes of Sarah, the eyes of his son, the eyes of Abraham, imagines the psychological uh, torment. And he comes to the conclusion that evangelicals don't like, which is that there can be a teleological suspension of the ethical. Um, if you overinterpret that, you'll take him to mean, you know, there's times to follow the rules and times to just say, bag it, um, let, I'll go with what God is saying. I don't think he's doing that. I think he's saying there are times when God calls us to do things that seem to go against his otherwise uh, stable commandments. Uh, but he's really, he, he may not be doing that, and also you've got to trust him anyway. And it, it's, a, it's, it's very challenging. Uh, Peter Kraft, mentioned him before, has a good little book, Making Sense Out of Suffering. Uh, C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain, it's an uneven book, but it's Lewis, and it's grand. Um, a colleague of mine named Dan McCartney wrote a nice book about the issue of suffering from a pastoral point of view, particularly as, he's a New Testament professor, particularly as the New Testament authors uh, deal with it. And, um, you know, he interacts with uh, Rabbi, what's his name, who says, why did good things happen to bad people? Um, and um, Kushner. Right. That's right, that's it. <laughs> I said it theologically correctly, right? <laughs> uh, anyway, um, and he also helps—he's helped me unpack some of those strange passages where Paul says we make up what's lacking in the sufferings of the of Christ, you know—and um, helped me understand that that passage. Um, Eleanor Stump, I mentioned her, I guess, the other day, mirror, The Mirror of Evil, which is a brilliant essay on how evil is actually not a conundrum for us. It's a mirror in our souls. And when we get that straight, we can, we're free to come to God. Tons of other books. The one in your required reading uh, by Don Carson is, is awfully good. And I, what I, I didn't put in here um, Oz Guinness edited or wrote and edited a curriculum that's become a book. Called, uh, but not through me. I think it's a quote of Solzhenitsyn, who said, "If there should be evil in the world, it should, it would not come. It should not come through me." Uh, very, very thoughtful, hard-hitting journey through um, the, the the reality of evil as it as it manifests itself in so many different ways to the to the Christian solution. Tons of. Helpful books, tons of not helpful books at all. Okay, one more quick one, or do we are we ready for a break, jo- Joe?
3: But before we quit, could I read another
1: one? Oh, that'd be great.
3: Since I won't be sharing with you tomorrow, I will. Oh, okay. Uh, this also is from uh, the American and Canadian University Student Magazine way back in the fifties when I was an undergraduate. This was a year before the album, this is from April 1953, was printed against a picture of uh, storm clouds. It's called Peter from Afar. And it's uh, as if it were Peter's thoughts as he stands uh, looking at the crucifixion from a far distance. Poor Mary Did you dream when he was new that from that dear face the father's face would turn or how? Fantastic thought. That pure, unfettered life should hang and bleed while this the excited Yahweh mob rants, blasting Torches, jeers, and stenches foul harangue thy innocence and sear my soul has raged the plants, my fears. O oh, naked, tortured shame! It's foolish, Lord, this ignominy. Save thyself, for warlike hosts stand ready at thy call. A sigh, a whispered word, and all would end. Thy father's kiss, and these were ghosts that dreamed of. For what other past goan endured such wicked glee? or had less cause to die. Come down, cries Justice. Be Messiah. Surely hands that cured the many could. But what's that cloud beneath the crown? That look? It seems that once before it said, Behind me, Satan. Hmm. Oh, Forgive me, Lord, for what I ought to see is veiled somehow. Could our salvation bind thee there? And couldst thou so hate sin? Fantastic, hope. Poor Mary, did you dream when he was new that now from that dear face the Father's face came?
7: Mm. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Bill, very much. Mm. Good. Um, can I just add these? Yeah. Um, this is a draft of Randall's article.
0: Uh, <laughs> All right. So, what do you think? Mm love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on facebook facebook.com forward slash pirate christian or follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian till tomorrow may god richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by jesus christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins amen